Well, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. As I shared last week, I've been praying over this summer, asking the Lord for vision on what he'd have for us next in his word. Wasn't quite ready to share that last week. I just needed a little bit more time to sit with it and just make sure that was what the Lord had for us. But I'm excited to announce what we're going to be diving into next in God's word is a study through the book of Ephesians, which we're going to be starting next Sunday. Um, Excited for that. Very doctrinally heavy book. It's so much practical Christian living as well. Like it's just packed full. There's something for every single person in the book of Ephesians. And I'm really excited for what the Lord's going to do through that in this next season for us as a church. And though uh, we, we did start something sort of in the interim there in between our Sermon on the Mount study and, and the next book study. And so last week we, we began this two-part study uh, which I believe is a, a fitting follow-up to what we just finished in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount two weeks ago, Matthew chapter 7, that I've titled, Coming to and Building Our Lives on Jesus. And so we're going to be finishing that this morning in First Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. And so in part 2 this morning, we're actually going to pinpoint just a few verses there. We looked at verses 4 through 8 last week. We're going to look at verse 5, and then verses 9 and 10 this morning. And so let's read that up front here. First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Peter writing, he says, Coming to him, speaking of Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Then verse 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. In part one last week, we saw clearly that our God is a God of invitation. Even just with those four passages that we considered, out of the the many that we could consider throughout the Bible. He's a God of invitation. He's wanting to bring us in, to draw us near, wanting to enjoy such sweet fellowship and relationship with us. That this is something, again, we see all throughout Scripture. And so we spent time last week looking at just a handful of passages that we, where we find the Lord telling us people, telling us to come to Him, inviting us near, that we would find in Him and enjoy in Him all that our hearts are, are longing for. 
We saw that how we come to Jesus last week, how we see him matters. It matters greatly, actually. That we're to come to him as to a living stone, chosen by God and precious. That unlike every other stone on this planet, this stone, Jesus, is alive. He has life. And not only is he a living stone, he's the one that was rejected by the builders, but has become the chief cornerstone, the only true and solid foundation, the only one that we can come to in belief and faith who won't put us to shame, that we can build our lives upon. We also saw from our verses last week that there are only two ways really to come to the living stone, our chief cornerstone, Jesus. Either we come to him in belief, we build our lives upon him as living stones, or we come to him in disbelief and we stumble over him because we've rejected him as the stone we need to center our lives and eternity upon. And even with knowing that some would reject him, even knowing that there are some who will who will blatantly ignore the reality, the truths of Scripture that our God has said, come. That He wants us to come. That He wants us to believe. That He wants us to build rightly upon Him. And with all that in mind, look at verse 5 as we get into our study this morning. Verse 5 says, You also, as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As I said last week, regarding the first part of this verse, there's this amazing transformative work that God is desiring to do and that he is doing in the lives of those who come to the living stone our chief cornerstone, Jesus. In coming to him, he has now made us into living stones too. And with these living stones, he's building a spiritual house made up of his people who he's given life to. And that spiritual house is the church. This house, this building, is continuing to be built by Jesus Himself, the creator, the the builder, the inventor of his church. The church is not a physical building, even though we often refer to it in that way. It's the people of God. And wherever the people of God gather, that's where the church can be found. And the rad thing about this spiritual house is that it's a house where we get to be family. It's a house where we get to worship and serve Jesus together. It's a, it's a house that would be an inviting place for others to come and find salvation and life and hope in Jesus, just like we have. We're being built up a spiritual house, but we're also being built up into a spiritual, a holy priesthood as we see in verse 5 to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ so not only have we been invited to come continually to 
enjoy closeness of fellowship with Jesus, to build our lives upon him. We've also been invited, we've been called, we've been consecrated even to serve him in his house as a holy priesthood. That word holy there, because maybe for some of us when we hear the word holy, we have some sort of mental picture in mind. Maybe for some of us when we think of holy, we think of someone who's Holier than thou, they have that sort of superior sort of attitude in pride. There's a spiritual self-righteousness. And so we, when we think of holy, our, our mindset might be like, well, I don't want to be that. I've experienced that. I've been repulsed by that. But maybe on the other hand, when we think of holy, we, we think of someone who we've gone, I could never be like them. But, but to have a right understanding that that word holy means dedicated. It means devoted, consecrated, set apart to be different. We are being built up as the church, the bride of Christ, the people of God. We're being built up a, a, a holy priesthood. Now, in order for us to, to better understand the significance of us being built up into a holy priesthood, we need to consider the original priesthood that God created and ordained in the Old Testament to understand this a little bit better. See, in the book of Exodus, after God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, brought them into the wilderness, and they had traveled for a time, they came to Mount Sinai. This is where God met with Moses. It's where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. It's where they began, he began giving Moses instructions or laws regarding all kinds of different things. But, but God also started to give Moses there in the wilderness instructions on building a sanctuary, a tabernacle, so that God could dwell among his people, where he gave instructions regarding how that should be built, what was all supposed to go inside of it, how all of that was supposed to be built, where God gave instructions on the court that would surround the tabernacle. But in Exodus chapters 28 and 29, we see God introduce and give instructions regarding priests, where God took this man named Aaron, Moses' brother, and Aaron's sons, and, and, and these men were going to minister to the Lord as priests. And we find this in Exodus 29, or I should say, we, we need to look at what God says in Exodus 29, verses 4 through 9. We're told there, and Aaron and his sons, you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron, and the robe of the ephod, the, the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. And you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. You shall gird them with sashes. Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute, so you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. So today, before everybody leaves, we've got a turban for you, 
and a sash and an ephod, anointing oil. But we see these spiritual pictures here. These Old Testament things pointed forward. They, 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 they looked forward to the things that would be fulfilled in a New Testament, New Covenant sort of way. Aaron and his sons were to be brought to the door of the tabernacle. And we see even in a New Testament way, what are we told about Jesus? He's the door. He's the door of the sheep. What's the first step for us? We come to Jesus. And then it says they're to be washed. We find in the New Testament this picture of God's word being this washing sort of element that God uses in our lives. We're washed with the water. We come to Jesus. We come to the door. We're washed by his word. He's cleansing us for service. He's cleansing us to approach. These garments that we know in a New Testament sort of way, we're we're clothed as believers in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How do we get to stand before a holy God? We stand because we're in Christ, clothed with his righteousness and his alone. This holy ephod, the, the crown there, it was a golden plate that was placed on the turban for, for Aaron, the high priest, and on it it said, holy to the Lord. That place of our minds even, that we're being set apart, we're, we're being sanctified, made holy by the Spirit of God. That consecration with oil, knowing that, man, we're able to, to serve God because we've been anointed, we've been consecrated by the power of the Spirit of God in our lives. You and I don't have to walk around with this whole getup. We look at this Old Testament sacrificial system and all the prescriptions, man, it was so rigid. There was a reason for it. But to know the freedom, even as we considered last week, all these things that we looked at even, to come boldly, come boldly to the throne, that never would have happened in the Old Testament. That didn't even happen for the high priest. He couldn't just come boldly into the presence. He couldn't come boldly to where the Ark of the Covenant was, the most holy place. You know when he could go? Once a year. Once a year. And you know how he approached? With fear. With bells on. And a rope tied to his ankle. Why? The bells, well, gosh, when the other priests that are just in the first part of the tabernacle of the temple, it, when they stopped hearing the bells, something's wrong. The dude's not moving. He must have had some sin when he approached and he's, he fell down dead. The rope was there so they could pull the dude out. They couldn't go in to grab him. And you and I, God's just going, Come! You're a holy priesthood. The veil that would have kept us out was torn when Jesus hung on the cross. He said, it is finished. That The veil was rent in two. God saying, look, I've, I've taken out of the way everything that was keeping you out. And now he's going, and I'm making you a holy priesthood. And this is special. 
fast forward 2,000 years from the time of Jesus, I'm sorry, 30 years fast forward from the time of Jesus, Peter writing this, and he's going, look, guys, we're living stones. We're part of the house. We're part of what God's doing. We're being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And this isn't just special from like a, oh, let's consider this from like a New Testament, New Covenant perspective. This, this would have been special and unusual and, and, and seriously encouraging for, for Jews and Gentiles in Peter's day to hear that Jesus is making us now as, as living stones in his church into a holy priesthood because only select Jews from the tribe of Levi would have ever been able to serve in that capacity under Mosaic law. No Gentile even would have been able to come and experience that. Even if they converted to Judaism, the closest they could have come was the court of the Gentiles, just staying on the outskirts. To know that both Jew and Gentile, God has brought in in a way that, man, they never, ever had experienced before. And understand this holy priesthood in verse 5 and and royal priesthood, as we'll consider in verse 9, is not talking about our function, our our role within the church. Like all of us now start to just be called priest. Right? That's that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about our access now to God, our freedom now to serve him as living stones in his house, his church. As a spiritual house, we no longer have to go to a specific place to meet with and worship God because that's what happened under the old covenant. Come to Jerusalem. How hard would that be for us? Well, I really I got to start saving some money. We you know, even a holy land tour, it's like, man, I got to save up save up like 4 grand. To go on this, it's going to take a little bit of time, and I can't. I got to get time off of work. Like there's a there's a there's a lot there, and then to go, I got to go three times a year for these at least these three feasts. There was more than those three, and if you want to be close to God, you better go there. We don't have to do that because we have the Spirit of God now dwelling inside of us. Each of us says. Disciples of Jesus Christ who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we have instant and full access to God. And because we're a holy priesthood, we now have freedom to serve him, which was something we never would have been able to experience if Jesus hadn't consecrated us, made us holy, called us to serve him. He's building us into a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Unlike the priests in the Old Testament who made physical sacrifices every single day, having to end the lives of countless animals as people came to make atonement for their sins. Man, isn't it great that like we don't have to have this altar out there where there's just like blood everywhere? 
everyone's coming in with a, like we give you a butcher apron when you come to church. Everyone's coming in a little queasy. I'm so thankful that that's not the kind of sacrifices that God is, God is calling us to. No one's coming to make atonement for their sins. We, we as a holy priesthood are not making sacrifices for sins because Jesus did this once for all as our great high priest and our sacrificial lamb. Instead, we're to offer up, Peter says, spiritual sacrifices. So what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we how do we do this? Well, in Scripture, we're given some examples of spiritual sacrifices. I want to share just, just four, just four examples. I shared four examples of invitation last week, four examples of spiritual sacrifices. The first one, uh, we're told in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says there, Paul writing, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And Paul wasn't expecting everyone to like get on a physical altar. Like just jump on, burn yourself alive. Paul wouldn't have been around to write this if that would have been, he would have already done that if that was the case. According to scripture, we're to give our bodies, present our lives, ourselves, our, our whole being to the Lord as a living sacrifice. Why living? Because that means willing. Living means willing. Because you and I in our free will, we can choose to not be the living sacrifice. I could choose to jump off of the altar. Lord, I don't want to do that. And he's going... I want you to be willing to get on. I want you to be willing to present your life to me and go, Lord, whatever you want. Lord, do whatever you want. All of me belongs to you. Lord, I surrender. In a physical and practical way, we're to present ourselves on the altar and and to do it as, a, as a, a sign of surrender. And when we do that, this helps us to see that everything we, we say and do can be an act of worship as we seek to live for the Lord. He doesn't say, and then play a song and it's a spiritual sacrifice. There are, there are elements of that. Here he's just saying, just stay surrendered to me. Just you doing that, that there's worship. That's an act of worship. And, and I think we need some of our, our mindset tweaked at times because we can so easily just think that worship's when I sing. Worship's when the band is playing. Worship's when I got this song going on on the radio in my car. But what about when we're just going, Lord, I just want to live for you. Lord, I want to love like you. Lord, this relationship, this coworker, this my neighbor, Lord, this is hard, but I'm going to love them with your love, that that is an act of worship to God. Why? Because we're surrendering. I'm denying myself. I'm surrendering my will to the Lord, and he's going, yeah, 
I love that. Do we know that God is well pleased when our lives are in that place of just being a living sacrifice where we're just going, Lord, have all of me. That that sort of spiritual sacrifice is holy and it's acceptable to God. And, and notice even there, it's our reasonable service. You ever felt like certain things are just unreasonable? Below you? We can come to the Lord feeling like at that at times, like, Lord, that's unreasonable for you to ask that of me. You want me to love my enemies and pray for them and bless them and do good to them? And that's unreasonable. But then when we take that and we put it back between our relationship with the Lord, that means it was unreasonable for Jesus to love us. It was unreasonable for Jesus to go to the cross. It was unreasonable for Jesus to take our sin. It was unreasonable to pay our debt in full because you know what? It was really, it was, it was below him. We are unworthy in that sort of sense as sinners. And yet he did it because he's good. He did it because he's perfect and loving and merciful and gracious. And I'm so thankful that he did unreasonable things in that sort of way for you and me. And when we present our lives to the Lord, he's going, it's reasonable. He's not asking too much for us to be surrendered to him. Secondly, though, I have my hand up with five fingers. Secondly, don't ever just get, I don't know, what do you do with your hands? When people are staring at you for that long, just don't even worry about it. Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul again writing, and this time to the church in Philippi, he says, indeed, and, and he's writing from prison here, indeed, I have all in abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. The church in Philippi had sent Paul a love gift, a financial gift to help him. And so we find here and elsewhere in Scripture, according to God's word, giving our financial and material resources to the work of the kingdom of God is a spiritual sacrifice that we can offer to him. That love gift, that care package that the church in Philippi sent to Paul, he says that was a sweet smelling aroma. It was an acceptable sacrifice. It was well-pleasing to God. Giving is a sacrifice. You ever notice that like so many other things in life are much easier to give to God than our finances? It's the one area that you and I have the hardest time oftentimes, not for everybody, but most people, the hardest time releasing into the hands of the Lord. We'll trust him with all kinds of things. But it's hard to trust him with our financial security. It's like a thing for us that we feel like, well, at least I have control of that. And he's going, but that too can be 
a spiritual sacrifice. And for many, it is a sacrifice. Man, it, it hurts sometimes. It costs us something. It's a sacrifice, a, a spiritual sacrifice demonstrated through the, the giving of physical and financial means. And, and this sacrifice, Paul says, is pleasing to the Lord. The third, though, Psalm 141, verse 2, the psalmist writing, he says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up my, of my hands as the evening sacrifice. According to Scripture, that the prayers we pray are another spiritual sacrifice that we can offer to God. The psalmist there likened prayer to incense. And prayer in other parts of Scripture is likened to incense, that the prayers of the saints are going up as a fragrant aroma to God. We ever picture our prayers in that sort of way? How often have we actually pictured it a totally different way? Like our prayers are going up and they're stopping at the ceiling. Did he hear? Lord, did you hear me? How many times have we taken the position of, of some of the psalmists where they're like, Lord, give heed to my prayer, bend your ear. Because at times the psalmist, even the psalmists, were going, Lord, are you hearing me? Is this accomplishing anything? Is this going anywhere? In this kind of peeling back of the, the spiritual reality of prayer here, the psalmist is going, it's like, it's like incense. It's going. It's going. It's, 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 it's hitting the mark. It's making it to the Lord. And, and not only is he hearing it, it in, in the, the heart of God, he's going, ah, oh, man, I love it. He doesn't say it's, it's like the stinkiest aroma. Some of us have like an aroma, right? And it's like that smell is like, oh man, I don't ever want to smell it. Like It like makes you feel weird in your gut, just like even me talking about it right now. Some of you are like, Don, not in the morning, Jared. It's too much. But even here, the psalmist sort of picturing in that day, the, the, the incense that would be burned within the tabernacle or the temple, closest, closest to the most holy place, closest to the Ark of the Covenant, closest to where the presence of God dwelt at that point in time. God, it's, it's getting to you. It's getting to you. You hear it. You smell it. You love it. It's a sacrifice that you're pleased with. And sometimes, guys, our, our prayers are a sacrifice. Just as our, our giving of our finances or the giving of our lives and surrender to the Lord, sometimes the giving of our prayers, sometimes we don't feel like it. I don't, sometimes you don't feel like praying. This element of sacrifice being like, I do it. I do it even when I don't feel it. I do it even when I'm, when I could be doing other things, but I'm going to sacrifice this time, Lord. I'm, I'm going to seek you in prayer. The spiritual sacrifice. And then finally, in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, 
We're told, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So again, according to Scripture, as well as those other things, singing praise is a sacrifice of our lips. Doing good and sharing is a sacrifice. And these spiritual sacrifices are ones that God is well pleased by. When we consider the giving of ourselves and our finances, our, our prayers, the, our songs, the doing good, sharing, there's a reason they're all called sacrifices that we've already considered. They cost us something. We may not always feel like doing it. These things might take us out of our comfort zones, but each one of these sacrifices are worth it. Why? Because they are for the Lord. They're for the Lord. They're an act of worship to our Lord and because they please him and honor him and glorify him. See, as a holy priesthood who don't have a physical temple, no longer have physical animal sacrifices, who don't have the restrictions that the Levitical priesthood had, our priesthood and our spiritual sacrifices are to be carried out in an unholy world among lost people who are needing us to represent our God to them. And through prayer and and doing good and sharing are to present them continually to our God. And what makes these spiritual sacrifices acceptable to the Lord, to the Father, is that they're being done through Jesus Christ in His name, by His Spirit, for His glory. You and I have been invited and consecrated by God to not only draw near to him in a way that the high priest of old was never able to, but also to serve him in ways that the priesthood of old was never able to. And with that consecration comes some amazing privileges, which we're going to consider now in verses 9 and 10. So verses 9 and 10 say, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So in contrast with those who, who stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed, which we saw at the end of verse 8, We, as we're told in verse 9, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. What's Peter telling us here? We've been given a new identity. An identity that we wouldn't have been given had we not come to Jesus in faith. But along with that new identity has come some Amazing privileges which we see in the first half of verse 9. First, we're told that we're now a chosen generation. That that word generation in the Greek is the word genos. It it carries the sense of, of people who are believed to belong to the same genetic stock or 
or carry the same genes. Like we find in a family where children carry the genes passed down from their biological parents. And how awesome is it to know that our being called into the family of God was not an accident accident on God's part. As believers, we are a chosen generation. He's chosen us. And his choosing was not accidental. It wasn't reckless. It wasn't even rooted in ignorance. He knew what he was getting when he chose us to be a part of his family. But secondly, we're also now a royal priesthood. So we aren't just being built up into a holy priesthood. We are now a royal priesthood. And this is interesting because under the old covenant, priests were never from royalty. In fact, a priest could never become king and a king could never become a a priest because they were from different tribes. The, The priesthood came from the tribe of Levi and the kings came from the, the tribe of Judah. Yet Jesus is a different kind of high priest. He didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. But there was a priesthood that came before the Levitical priesthood, the, the high priest Melchizedek, who were told that Jesus is a priest in the line of. So Jesus was able to be a prophet and priest and king, the only one to hold all three offices. And we now, is, and we now serve as spiritual priests under his priestly line, a royal line, which makes us a royal priesthood in the family and kingdom of God. But thirdly, we're now a holy nation. That word nation in the Greek is the word ethnos. This, is, this word carries the sense of a large group of people based on, uh, based on various cultural or physical or geographical ties. The, the body of Christ, which we are born again into, consists of a multitude of languages and dialects and cultural differences with various shades of skin color found on every continent and island in the world. And those differences and that diversity is not erased or ignored when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and become the body of Christ. But but what we find is that those differences and that diversity are no, no longer something that defines us or divides us because we've all been taken and made holy by the Lord together as one nation. And that's amazing. Because you and I can band together because we like the same band, the same musical group. We can band together because we like the same sports team. Really looking forward to basketball season starting again soon. Go Warriors. Anyways. We can gather around certain things and be like, yes, we're one. But that oneness ends when that thing that brought us together is gone. We don't have that with like somebody in some aboriginal tribe somewhere. We we can't even, it's like, I don't know how to connect. We We don't speak the same language. 
But if you've been anywhere else in the world as a disciple of Jesus and you met another believer, they might not even speak the same language as you. They might look completely different from you. But there is, there's a fellowship there. There's a, there's a brotherhood there. There's something special there that you can't have with anybody else. And it's all because of what Jesus has done in our lives individually and what he's done in, in his people collectively to make us a holy nation. This holy nation, Jesus' church, is not specific to a geographical location or a certain culture or that's defined because we share the same language or the same skin color, the, like the same team or whatever. As the church, God has made a new people made up of incredible diversity, and yet we are all one in Jesus Christ. And that's amazing. But fourthly, we're also now his own special people, or that could be translated a people of his own possession. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the language Peter uses here in verse 9 is also language that God used when speaking to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Check out what God said to the wilderness uh, wandering Israelites in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. God said, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, God speaking to Moses there for the people, which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Special treasure, kingdom of priests, a holy nation, these were terms God used for the nation of Israel, but are now also applied to us as disciples of Jesus. And understand this, some have wrongly uh, taken this away and, and have gotten a very destructive and, and, and horrible sort of theology, but the church has not replaced Israel. We don't subscribe to replacement theology here at Calvary Chapel. God has not forsaken Israel. He still has a plan, still has promises for them. You, you can't read um, Romans chapters 9 through 11 and take anything else away. But we as Christians are a people who have now been grafted in, now get to partake of all the privileges of being God's chosen people. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus for salvation, we are those who have been purchased with the precious blood of Jesus. And because of that, we now belong to him as his special people. And the outflow of these privileges we've been given is found in the second half of verse 9, where we find our commission. He says that we may proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Guys, we have reason to proclaim the praises of Jesus. And the first one that we're given there is that Jesus has called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. See, before the light of Christ shone upon our hearts, we were in darkness. We belonged to Satan. We were slaves to sin. We were separated from God by our sin. 
but Jesus shined his light, his truth, into our lives. He opened our blind eyes. He caused us to see. He snatched us out of the darkness. He transferred us into his kingdom, which is a kingdom of light. Because our God is light. In him is no darkness at all, as we've been told in 1 John chapter 1. The, the second reason we're given that should cause us to pro- proclaim Jesus' praise is in verse 10, that we once were not a people, but are now the people of God. See, before Christ saved us, we were estranged from the things of God and from God himself. We were on our own. We were living independently from him. And what we were was on the road leading to destruction, but because of what Jesus has done for us and in us and given to us, we are now the people of God adopted into his family, those who are destined to receive an eternal inheritance because of Jesus. Now on the road leading to life as those who are in Christ. We're now the people of God. But added to that, we are those who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. You know what was true of us before Jesus became our Savior? We were those who had judgment coming to us. We were those without mercy Mercy is withholding what's deserved. We would have gotten what we deserved. The wrath of the Father, us paying the penalty for our own sins, us being eternally separated from God by our sin. But praise God that Because of Jesus, we're now those who have obtained mercy. We've received it. Where instead of judgment, we've received the mercy, the love, the compassion of Jesus Christ. And these things provide plenty of reasons for us to be a people who proclaim Jesus' praise. Do we proclaim his praise Enough. Do we think about these things? Yeah, Lord, I was once in the darkness. Lord, you pulled me out of that. Lord, I once was not a people. I was separated from you, but now, Lord, you brought me near by the blood of Christ. Lord, I I once was someone who had not received your mercy, but now I have. And, And those things in us to cause us to overflow with praise to the Lord. I think we, we need to be people more and more who, who do that even with unbelievers. Not just with other believers, like, praise God! Look what God's done in my life, and, pray, and we should. 
But what about when you're talking to somebody who doesn't know the Lord, they're not of the people of God, they've not received mercy, they're still in the darkness, and you're just going off on how amazing Jesus is, how he saved you and he paid the penalty for your sin. He's given you his mercy and you're, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're not in the darkness. He's made you part of his people. And, and someone, the person's just like, oh, okay. They need to hear that though. They need to hear about the goodness of your God. They need to hear what your God has done, and they need to hear what my God has done in my life. Proclaim his praises. I like what Warren Wiersbe said here as we come to a close. I'm now the worship team come back up. He said, all of these privileges carry with them one big responsibility, revealing the praises of God to a lost world. The verb translated show forth means to tell out, to advertise. Because the world is in the dark, people do not know the excellencies of God, but they should see them in our lives. Each citizen of heaven is a living advertisement for the virtues of God and the blessings of the Christian life. Our lives should radiate the marvelous light into which God has graciously called us. So how do we respond this morning? What's reasonable? What are the kind of sacrifices that the Lord's desiring? What kind of access do we have? Well, we know, as we looked at last week, we're to come boldly. Lord, you want me. You want to give me your yoke, which is easy, your burden, which is light. You want me to find rest for my soul. You want me to build my life upon you. You're making us into this holy priesthood. Lord, help me to embrace that. Help me to live a life of surrender. Lord, help me to see how my, my, the giving of my resources or the, the giving of my prayers or the, the praise that it comes from the fruit of my lips or the doing good and sharing. Lord, I want my life to, to be something that pleases you. It's like that fragrant aroma that's coming up to your throne room, Lord, and you're just like stoked on what's coming from my life. Don't we want God to be stoked on what's coming from his church here? Not looking down going like, what the heck are those people doing? <laughs> Lord, we want you to be pleased. And guys, he's given us all the He's given us everything here to know how to do it. But we need to do it. We need to act upon it. So even this morning that we would go, maybe for some of us we're going, I've, been, I've had like one foot on the altar. Or I've been kind of like, I'm like touching the altar from, with like, from like arm's distance. I'm on the altar, Lord, look, it's my hand. My pinky. <laughs> He's like, get on the whole thing. Get your whole self on there. And seek me. And live for me. Praise me. Be that sort of witness. It's reasonable. And this world is watching us. And they're going, what's so good about their life with Jesus that I would need that? That I would even want that? 
what we've looked at this morning, man, if, if this is true, if these things would be true, really, of us, our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members and our friends, they're going to be looking at us going, what in the world? What has happened? I want what they have. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus, you went to the cross. You came here, Lord, to dwell among us. God, that we could have you because, Lord, you wanted us. And so, Lord, in your desire for us, You did what was necessary. You did what was necessary, Lord, that we could be brought out of darkness and it's your marvelous light. That we could go from enemies to the people of God. That we could go from people who were in a position where ultimately we would just receive judgment and separation, Lord, to a people who have received the mercy of God of God. God, we praise you. Lord, you're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our lives. And God, yes, it it does cost us something, but that cost is not unreasonable. Lord, knowing what you've done for us, how can we not give you all of us? Lord, knowing the identity that you've given us in Christ, Lord, God, how can we not sing your praise? Lord, you've given us what we need. Lord, we've come to the door. We come to Jesus. Lord, even this morning, we've we've gotten some of that washing of the water of the word. God, it's you who make us holy. It's you who is sanctifying us. Lord, it's you who has that anointing oil of your spirit for our lives this morning, God, that we can live out these things. All because, Jesus, you're our cornerstone. Lord, you're our rock and our redeemer. You're our shelter, our savior, our defender our friend. God, we just say thank you. Lord, we love you and we want to live for you. Lord, help us to apply these things to our lives. God, that others, others, Lord, would would be drawn to Jesus because of, of your work in and through our lives. And Lord, for anybody here this morning, and they've not just first received your salvation, they're not yet the people of God, they've not yet received your mercy, they've not yet been transferred out of the darkness, Lord, this morning, would would this be the time where they surrender to you, Lord, the, the time, God, where they open their hearts to you in faith to receive your salvation? That anybody here this morning and you're going, that's me. I I want 
to be pulled out of the darkness. I want the mercy of God, the salvation of God, the forgiveness of sins. Would you raise your hand if that's you this morning so I can pray for you? Anybody? Don't let this opportunity pass you. The Bible says today, today is the day of salvation. God, we want to proclaim your praises even this morning. So God, we offer ourselves to you. Lord, have your way with us. We praise you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.